Turn again in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll look at verses 21 to 26 today. Last week we stepped into deep waters, as some of you know, considering the question of what is the place of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Testament Christian. That's a huge and controversial subject, one that is difficult to define precisely and uh, exhaustively and consistently. But our text last week gave us two parameters for the discussion. One is that Jesus fulfilled the law. But in another sense, the law still applies to us. Or to put it another way, we are no longer under the legal system of ancient Israel, but the God who gave Israel the law is our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what the law teaches us about him is binding upon us. Fortunately, though the Lord Jesus says profound things that baffle theologians who try to organize them into coherent systems of thought, Jesus primarily speaks God's truth quite plainly in ways that common folks can understand who are willing to trust him and obey his words. And so this morning, Jesus, who in last week's text laid claim to the law as being fulfilled in him, now begins to tell us what that means for us as we follow him. So let me read it. Matthew 5, verse 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And there we'll end our reading of God's word. This passage seems to divide into two truths. The first is this. God forbids not only murder, but its roots. God forbids not only murder, but its roots. Even when children are quite young, you who are parents have experienced this, I'm sure, they become masters of the loopholes. I remember in, around my house uh, hearing things like, well, you said I couldn't ride my bicycle in the street. You didn't say I couldn't sta- skateboard in the street. Legal loophole. I remember saying to my son one time, I can't possibly think of everything that you might think of to tell you you can't do that. And so it begins when we're little and continues to grow until as adults we have created a legal system in which obvious criminal behavior can sometimes go unprosecuted due to some procedural loophole. Well, folks, that's not new. 
That's what Jesus encountered with the teachers of the law. They so emphasized the letter of the law that the spirit of the law, the implications of the law, became meaningless. Which, by the way, is really helpful if you're trying to establish your own righteousness, as they were. You see, it's fairly easy to refrain from murdering someone. It's sometimes almost impossible to refrain from wishing that they were dead. But Jesus refused to allow a division between what the law actually says and its clear implication for our lives. Now, interestingly, when people say that Jesus has fulfilled the law, so Christians are not not legally bound like Israel was, we tend to assume that they're saying Jesus is soft on the law. Because of his work, it has nothing to say to us. It's somehow not binding at all on us. But that's not the case. Jesus actually expanded the law's demands to include our thoughts and our motives, the roots of our actions, not just the actions. So here we read what Jesus actually taught. You have heard it was said, do not murder. That's what was etched in stone on Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not kill or murder. But then Jesus goes further. But I say to you, being angry will bring you into judgment. Interesting to note that two two different words for anger in Greek. One word describes an emotion that flares up like a wildfire in a second. But the word used here describes a brooding vindictive anger. William Barclay describes it as anger that has become deep-rooted, long-lived anger, the anger of those who nurse their wrath to keep it warm, anger over which people brood and which they will not allow to die. That's the anger that's the root of murder. Jesus says that will bring into judgment certainly as actually killing someone. But he goes on, I say to you, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the council, the Sanhedrin. Raka is a word that seems to mean empty. It's not really a word that's used in conversation so much, it's more of an expletive, I think. It is a contemptuous insult. It's like calling someone a brainless idiot, an empty-headed blunder, a blockhead, Raka. Here the murderous heart has begun the assassination with words. The root of the act of murder. Then Jesus goes any further, even further. He says, I say to you, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. The Greek word for fool is moros. We have a word that comes from that, moron. But according to the Old Testament, the fool was the one who said in his heart, there's no God. So to call someone a fool was not just to call him a moron. It was to call into question their moral character. And once we condemn someone as morally corrupt, we can justify a murderous attitude toward them. They're not fit to live. Clearly, you see, Jesus condemns not just murder, But its roots, the bitter root of brooding anger, the root of dismissive evil words and contemptuous insults, 
the, the, the root of accusation, dismissing someone as morally condemned. There's a logical progression that Jesus is making here that's, that, that under, uh, uh, un, that's the, the underpinnings of his uh, rationale here. It goes kind of like this, if we were to kind of expand it out and talk about it a little bit. Starts with, it is a violation of God's law to stab someone to death, right? Thou shalt not kill. That's a violation of God's law. If so, would it also be a violation of God's law to stab someone trying to kill him, but he doesn't die? Would that make you guilty? If so, would it not also be a violation of the law to try to stab someone even if you miss or are restrained and are not successful? If, that, if so, would it not also be a violation to look for a knife to go stab someone and not be able to find a knife in time? And if that would be a violation of the law, would it also be a violation of the law to wish somebody else would kill that person? Or to tell that person he should be killed? Or would it not be a violation of the law to just say, to, to just wish he had never been born? Or to call him scum? Would it, would it be a violation of the law to just think he's useless? If so, is it not also a violation of the law to just feel contempt for him, to have a heart full of malice? You see, Jesus is saying all of those things proceed from the same heart. The only difference is the degree to which they find expression, given our various situations and the various restraints upon us. But God sees the heart and he calls all of these a violation of the command Not to murder. God forbids not only murder itself, but its roots. Given this, we have to admit that our lives, even our churches, are full of murderous roots. Bitterness and malice and contempt and slander and unresolved anger. It's everywhere, isn't it? How ridiculous was the Pharisee's self-righteousness? How ridiculous is ours? In light of Jesus' interpretation of the law. How dare we think that we will stand before Christ Jesus when he judges. And say, I've kept the law. I've never violated the sixth commandment. I'm not a murderer. How desperately we need a better righteousness than that. If we're ever to enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of Jesus which he grants us rather than what we deserve. But Jesus had not finished expounding this commandment, which brings us to a second point. God requires not only restraint, but reconciliation. God requires not only restraint, but reconciliation. When we think about the law, especially the Ten Commandments, we tend to focus on what is forbidden. Naturally so, the commandments say negatively, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But Jesus did not just come to keep us from doing what was wrong. He came to enable us to do what is right. And that's what our text addresses beginning in verse 23. 
We know this is tied to Jesus' teaching on what the commandment requires because verse 23 begins with the word, therefore. That means verse 23 is presenting an implication or drawing a conclusion from the teaching of verse 21 and 22. And the point is God requires not only that we that we are restrained from murdering and from hating, he demands reconciliation. Think about the, the scenario described in verse 23 and 24. You're, counting, you're coming with your gifts to worship the Lord. Presumably, you're not guilty of murder. In fact, in obedience to Jesus, you have restrained those bitter roots which tend to grow in our hearts. So it's a great day. It's a great day to worship the Lord. And suddenly as you come about to worship, you remember a situation that though you have carefully guarded your heart against malice toward your brother, you are aware that he is upset at you. He thinks, erroneously perhaps, that you have wronged him. Now, in such a, such a situation, our first response tends to be, not my problem. If he wants to have his back up when I have done nothing to him, that's his problem. My conscience is clear. But Jesus has not finished unpacking the implications of the sixth commandment. I think the logic goes something like this. If it is murderous, For me to have malice towards someone, is it not also murderous for them to have malice toward me? And if God requires that I not tolerate even a hint of a murderous heart, does he not also require that I love righteousness enough to remove the occasion of malice from my brother's heart and be reconciled to him? Now, this logic may stretch our minds as we try to unpack the commandment against murder. But it makes perfect sense when we consider what Christ's righteousness looked like. Remember, when we were estranged from God, it was not Jesus' fault. And yet he's the one that took the initiative, who gave himself to remove the offense between us and reconcile us to God. In doing so, he was fulfilling this commandment for us, paying the penalty for violating it with our murderous hearts, even though he didn't violate it, and making us righteous like him as if we had never sinned. And now, according to 2 Corinthians 5, God, who did not deal with us as our sins deserved, but reconciled us to Christ by giving of himself, now he gives to us that work of reconciliation, of not dealing with people as their sins deserve, not even allowing their sins against us to prolong their alienation against God, but to be ministers of the gospel by which Jesus brings peace. This reminds me of the parable that Jesus told later about the unmerciful servant. You remember that? A servant owed his master millions of dollars. He could not pay. But he begged his master to please, please have mercy. And the master was merciful. He forgave his whole debt. Let him off scot-free. Later that day, that servant ran into another servant who owed him a few bucks. 
And he demanded he pay. And the other servant said, have mercy on me. Can't pay. Have mercy. Have mercy. But the man who'd recently been forgiven showed no mercy. He had that debtor thrown in prison until he could pay. So God who has forgiven us. And, and the master was displeased with that and called the servant in and said, how dare you? We've been forgiven so much to be refused to forgive. And so God who has forgiven us demands that we forgive those who owe us. God requires reconciliation. And then down in verse 25 and 26, Jesus impresses upon us the urgency of this work of reconciliation. Jesus makes his point by means of a story about someone taking us to court. For some reason, an adversary uh, has decided to bring suit against us. Apparently, there's some dispute about a debt. By the way, those disputes, by the way, those disputes are the things that spawn murderous anger, you know. Now, we live in a litigious society. We know how these things can get. Often, neither side really wins in the long run. And so in our culture, we have learned that there's, it's sometimes wise to settle out of court if possible. Who knows which way the verdict might go in the long run? Who knows how long it will take and how much it will cost? How much better to settle the matter? Even if it costs you, settle it and have peace. And so the prospect of God's judgment, which according to Christ will be based on his interpretation of the law, presses us to the urgency of being reconciled to one another, of settling disputes, even with our enemies. You see, God is not just concerned that we restrain our hearts from murderous anger. He's concerned that we get on the side of grace, that we practice the grace of reconciliation as God in his grace has reconciled us who didn't deserve it, who were guilty. People, we need to hear this. We live in a society in which no one wants to admit a responsibility for discord. We live in a time when people love to, but we live in a time that people love to fight. We love to go to court. We love to sue one another. We live in murderous days where hatred is the norm and it often spills out in killing. We need to listen to Jesus' interpretation of the law. It's not just about refraining from murder. It's all about our hearts and about our relationships and our responsibility to live out the grace that we have received. God requires not only the restraint of our murderous heart, but it requires that we, like him, practice the grace of reconciliation. Dan Doriani, who was a seminary classmate of mine, that's now a, it's now a professor at Covenant Seminary, sums up this passage nicely. He says, the command do not murder seems so simple. It's familiar. It protects us. And it's externally, at least, it's easy to observe. But Jesus comes to fulfill the law, to disclose its complete meaning, which is this. We must give up rage and contempt, and we must be peaceful and make peace, both with our brothers and with our enemies, with those whom we offend and with those who wrongly take offense. 
Clearly, Jesus calls us to do more than we're capable of doing here. But the same Jesus who gave those commands blesses the poor in heart who know they will never be good enough. And the same Jesus who reveals the depth and breadth of this law also makes known the depth and the breadth of his grace. We may never be sufficient for such a life, but he has given us his spirit who produces such good fruit in those who trust the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we could all say, well, I'm not a murderer. and feel good about ourselves, but we know that we don't have to look far under the surface to find uh, anger and bitterness and uh, all the things that uh, cause division and strife among us. Father, even when we've worked on those and tried to clean up our hearts, Lord, we're often far from feeling any responsibility to be reconciled, especially if the problem is really somebody else's problem. (laughs) Teach us, Lord, to be like you. Not only pure in heart, Lord, but full of grace, willing to not treat others as their sins deserve, but to be reconciled. And increasingly so, Lord, as we think of the judgment to come when we will stand before you and give an account. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you find your uh, bulletin, there's an affirmation of faith there.